I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we set aside our preconceived and traditional notions of what the Bible is saying, and simply allow the Bible to tell us what it has to say. This week we continue on in the book of Leviticus and the sacrificial system that is outlined here at the beginning of this book. Over the last few weeks we have been examining this system and discussing the attitudes and ideas that are encompassed in each of the sacrifices that are described in this book. Before we get there, however, let's review a bit and catch back up to a few of the foundational points of this book. The book of Leviticus, just as with the book of Exodus, has a title in the English that does not truly describe the scope of the book and all that it's trying to do. In the book of Exodus, we discovered that the events of the Exodus ended less than halfway through the book, which leaves many of us scratching our heads or moving on in boredom when the exciting bits are over. But if we consider the Hebrew name of the book, Shemot, or Names, we discover that the book of Exodus is rather than simply a retelling of the narrative of Israel leaving Egypt, but rather it's a revelation of the names of God. Well, the same applies for the book of Leviticus. The name Leviticus is a transliteration of the Greek name for the book, which means pertaining to the Levites in the Greek. The name misses the point to a degree, as there's much more that's present in this book than the things that pertain to the Levites. All of Israel is under discussion in this book. Instead, if we look to the name of the book of Leviticus in the Hebrew, we discover that the name is, And He Called. Now, in the specific circumstance of the beginning of this book, this word is part of the opening words in which Hashem calls to Moses from the tabernacle. At the point where this book begins, Moses, Aaron, and everyone else were prevented from entering the tabernacle because the presence of God was filling the tent. And if we turn to the next book in line, Numbers, we discover that at the beginning of the next book, Hashem speaks to Moses while he is in the tabernacle. And if we consider this, we find that this book is the book that contains all that was needed for Moses and the priests to be able to enter into the tabernacle. At the end of the Exodus, we read of the tent, the place designed for God and man to come together in unity. But the book of Leviticus describes for us the process of being in unity with God. It describes how a person should respond and the things that a person should know before worshiping the God of the universe. Because worshiping the God of all creation can be a dangerous affair, as we'll find out in the course of this book. Leviticus, Vayikra, is the handbook of worship that was given to the people of Israel. The things in this book may not be the most interesting. I mean, the things in this book, they do get a bit gory. The things in this book may be very difficult to connect to for modern audiences. 
The thing is, is that this book may be even completely useless to us as we cannot legitimately engage in the practices such as sacrifice and designations such as ritual purity have very little application in our lives. Regardless of all this, Leviticus is a book that is necessary to understand as it teaches us many things of great importance that are necessary for us to understand in connection to worship. So as we open the book of Leviticus, we are confronted immediately with the process of the sacrificial system, and the first seven chapters are dedicated to describing this process. And as we go through these sacrifices, we discover that there are four primary types of sacrifice. The first type of sacrifice is discussed in chapter 1, and it's the Ola sacrifice. And as we saw two weeks back, the Ola, burnt or ascending sacrifice, contains within it the attitude of awe towards God. The fear of Hashem, that is the beginning of so many other things, is also the beginning of Leviticus and the beginning of sacrifice. The second offering that's listed in Leviticus is found in chapter 2. It's the Mincha, this bloodless offering of grain. And as we discovered, when we discussed it, the name of the sacrifice gives us the clues to the attitudes that are contained in this offering. Mincha, as we see in other places in scripture, means gift or tribute. The idea of being in relationship with someone close or the idea of being a servant or a vassal to a great king or master. The third type of sacrifice in Leviticus is the shlamim, peace or fellowship offering, and it is the type of sacrifice that highlights the ideals of friendship or fellowship between God and man. It's a shared meal that's eaten by everyone involved in the sacrificial system, and this sacrifice is one that can be broken up into three subsets of sacrifice. The thanksgiving offering, This offering is the one where the worshiper offers an animal, invites his closest friends and relatives to celebrate in thanksgiving, something that Hashem has done or is going to do for the worshiper. The second type is the vow offering. Now, this offering is one in which a person who is taking a vow eats a meal with God and his closest associates who partake as witness to the vow. The third type being the voluntary sacrifice. Now, this is one that is offered simply because the worshiper wishes to share a meal with God. Nothing in particular to offer thanksgiving for, no vow being taken, no gift or tribute, simply a desire to eat a meal with God and his representatives. The fourth and final type of sacrifice is the topic for today, the chatat or sin sacrifice. This sacrifice is perhaps the most misunderstood sacrifice listed in Leviticus. Too often, this sacrifice is steeped in the idea that it could clean a person of their sins, but that is not the case. As Hebrews 10.4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's not something new with Hebrews. That's always been the case. The chatat was never intended for the purpose of taking away sins. So what was it for? And what can we learn from this sacrifice if it has nothing to do with the removal of sin? Well, that's what we're going to explore today. So open up to Leviticus 4, and let's read this chapter, and then discuss the sin sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 4 And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, When a being sins by mistake against any of the commands of Hashem, which are not to be done, and shall do any of them. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then he shall bring to Hashem for his sin which he has sinned, a young bull, a perfect one, as a sin offering. And he shall bring the bull to the door of the tent of appointment before Hashem, and shall lay his hand on the bull's head, and slay the bull before Hashem. 
And the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tent of appointment. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before Hashem, in front of the veil of the holy place. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before Hashem, which is in the tent of appointment, and pour all the blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the ascending offering, which is at the door of the tent of appointment. Then he takes all of the fat of the bull as the sin offering, the fat which covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the loins, and the appendage on the liver which he removes with the kidneys, as it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of the ascending offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, and its entrails and dung, all of the bull he shall bring outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out, and burn it on wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it is burned. And if the entire congregation of Israel strays by mistake, and the matter has been hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done against any of the commands of Hashem which are not to be done, and shall be guilty. When the sin which they have sinned becomes known, then the assembly shall bring a young bull for the sin, and bring it before the tent of appointment, and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before Hashem, and the bull shall be slain before Hashem. And the anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tent of appointment, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before Hashem in front of the veil, and put some of the blood on the horns of the altar which is before Hashem, which is in the tent of appointment, and pour all the blood at the base of the altar of ascending offering which is at the door of the tent of appointment. Then he takes all the fat from it and shall burn it on the altar, and he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as sin offering. So shall he do it, and the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. And he shall bring the bull outside the camp, and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly. When a ruler sins, and by mistake has done against any of the commands of Hashem his God, which are not to be done, and shall be guilty, or if his sin which he has sinned is made known to him, then he shall bring as his offering a buck of the goats, a male, a perfect one, and he shall lay his hands on the head of the goat, and slay it at the place where they slay the ascending offering before Hashem. It is a sin offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, and shall put it on the horns of the altar of ascending offering, and pour the blood at the base of the altar of ascending offering, and burn all its fat on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice for the peace offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. And if any being of the people of the land sins by mistake by doing against any of the commands of Hashem, which are not to be done, and shall be guilty, or if his sin which he has sinned shall be made known to him, then he shall bring as his offering a female goat, a perfect one for his sin which he has sinned. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and slay the sin offering at the place of the ascending offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger, and shall put it on the horns of the altar of ascending offering, and pour all of the blood at the base of the altar. Then remove all its fat, as fat is removed from the sacrifice for the peace offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for the sweet fragrance to Hashem. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. And if he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he brings a female, a perfect one. And he shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering, and shall slay it as a sin offering, at the place where they slay the ascending offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, and shall put it on the horns of the altar of ascending offering, and pour all of the blood at the base of the altar. Then he removes all its fat, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the fire offerings to Hashem. 
so the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has sinned, and it shall be forgiven him. Now there are in every language words that mean a thing, and then also mean the exact opposite of the thing. So, for example, in English we have words such as overlook. Overlook in one context means a place where a person can stop and look over something of interest. Let's stop at the overlook. But in an entirely different context, it can mean to not see something at all. I overlooked my wallet that was sitting on the table. Another example is the word left. In one context, it can describe something that remains. How many cookies are left on that platter? But in another context, it means something that has departed. They have left the party already. Now, the word seed can mean to add seed to something, such as seeding the lawn, or it can mean to remove seeds, as in seeding a tomato or a watermelon. Or the word cleave can mean to join two things together. A man will cleave to his wife, but it can also mean to cut something in two. He cleaved the meat with his knife. So what does this have to do with sin and the sin sacrifice? Well, this little aside can help us to understand what's occurring with the word sin in Hebrew, and it's something that we can apply to the sin sacrifice and the effect that this sacrifice has on sin. Now, there's one other word that I've used in the past to describe this process, and so let's examine it as it is the closest ideologically to what is occurring here. So, the word that we're going to discuss is the word dust. Now, with the word dust, it has three different meanings that are connected, but opposite. For example, what is the tiny particulate matter that is found on objects that are left sitting out for long periods of time? Well, it's dust. That shelf over there is covered in dust. And what is the word used for applying a small particulate powder to a thing or a surface? Well, that's also the word dust. Dust the cake with powdered sugar, please. And what is the word used for the act of removing the same small particulate matter from the surface? Once again, we have the word dust. I'm going to go dust the shelf. Well, the word chata'ah in Hebrew works in a similar way. It's not exact. They're two completely different languages and they do slightly different things, but that works very similarly, and this is just an analogy to help us to grasp onto what's going on here. So at its base meaning, the word sin, chata'a, describes an act of sinning. Alternatively, it can describe a state that we as humans are stuck in, the nature of our flesh. We are sinful by nature, but we also commit sins. Sin in scripture is something that we are, as well as something that we do. And in the Hebrew, our sin creates something that, unlike dust, is not called sin. It's called uncleanness or filthiness. And it is the job of the sin sacrifice to remove the uncleanness that is a result of this sinful state that we live in. So while the comparison to dust is not a one-to-one comparison, it is relatively close. Now, we have in the modern world an idea of sin that I don't believe is completely accurate. When I say the word sin, what do we think of? Well, we usually think of an act that is committed that is then called sin. 
And passages like Galatians 5 are the places that we turn to in order to find a listing of actions that are considered sin. Galatians 5, 19-21, The works of the flesh are well known, which are these, adultery, whoring, uncleanness, indecency, idolatry, drug sorcery, hatred, quarrels, jealousies, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, murder, drunkenness, wild parties, and the like, of which I forewarn you, even as also said before, that those who practice such as these shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, these things are called works of the flesh, and it is our flesh that is sinful. Romans 7, 5. For when we were in the flesh, the passions of sin through the Torah were working in our members to bear fruit to death. But there's another part to sin that's not encompassed by the idea of an action that is taken that's not good or right. Sin is not just what we do. Sin is who we are apart from God. Romans 5 verse 19, For as through the disobedience of one man many were made sinners, also through the obedience of one man many shall be made righteous. Or Romans seven fourteen through 20 For we know that the Torah is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold under sin. For what I work I know not, for what I wish that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. But if I do what I do not wish, I agree with the Torah that it is good. And now it is no longer I that work, but the sin dwelling in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good. For to wish is present with me, but to work the good I do not find. For the good that I wish to do, I do not do. But the evil that I do not wish to do, this I practice. And if I do that which I do not wish, it is no longer I who work, but the sin dwelling in me. Or even Psalm 51 verse 5. See, I was brought forth in crookedness, and in sin my mother conceived me. Not too many times we look at that last verse and think, Oh no, was David's mother engaging in sexual immorality when he was conceived? And if we understand sin as only an action, then it's natural to wonder what sin was it that David's mother was engaged in. But when we understand that our very nature, the nature of death in our flesh, is a nature of sin, then we can begin to understand that David's mother did not take wrong action. Just the way that humans are conceived and the way that we are born is in itself part of our sinful nature. So, what does the word sin mean? We're going to go with the Greek on this, and the Greek word that is translated as sin is hamartia. And though this word is a term that is used in archery, that simply means to miss the mark, whether on purpose, because of some outside force, such as a stray wind, or because of a simple lack of skill. The word hamartia applies to every time that an archer misses their target. And the word sin acts in the same way. For what is the mark? Well, the mark that we're shooting for is the glory of God or the honor of God. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not a single one of us is God. We all fall short of his glory simply because of the mortal flesh that we live in. A flesh that is defined by and practiced in death. We are sin. Death itself is sin in that it misses the mark of an everlasting God. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be our sins for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeshua, who knew no sin, became sin. But wait, wait, wait. Yeshua never sinned in his actions, right? Yes. And that's it exactly. By the simple fact that Yeshua put on mortal human flesh that then died, he became sin on our behalf. Once he put on human flesh, it was inescapable that he must die. And in all of this, Yeshua became sin for us. God caused Yeshua to be sin for us. That doesn't mean that he ever committed a sin or took an action that was a sin. But in his flesh, because it could die, he became sin. I believe that's what 2 Corinthians 5 is talking about. And this is significant because when we only see sin as an action, we lose the fullness of the idea of sin. Sin is rather our nature. And it's our nature because Adam, who had been brought into the garden of God, sinned when he did the thing that he was told that he must not do. And what is the result of that sin that we all deal with? Romans 5.12 For this reason, even as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Sin led to death. Death is the result of sin, and death is in our flesh. Death is something that is inescapable for humans. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to look at the concept of uncleanness, or in the Hebrew, it's tameh. And this idea of uncleanness is usually steeped in the idea of ritual uncleanness. But this ritual uncleanness is the result of sin. And as we live life, we become unable to avoid uncleanness. It clings to us like our own skin, whether we commit a sin or not. That might sound a little harsh, but it's true, and we'll talk about it later. But God wishes to be in relationship with humans, and sin is an affront to him. He wishes to dwell in our midst. His goal is for heaven and earth to be united together, But that cannot occur as long as sin lasts, and that will not occur as long as death exists. 1 Corinthians 15, 23-26 And each in his own order, Messiah the firstfruits, then those who are of Messiah at his coming. Then the end, when he delivers up the kingdom of God to the Father, when he has brought to nothing all rule and all authority and all power. For he has to reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be brought to nothing is death. Once sin is dealt with once and for all, the kingdom will be handed over to the Father by the Son. Until then, we live in sin and death and uncleanness. So, sin is who we are. And uncleanness is the result of our existence. And uncleanness, unfortunately, is an anathema to God. So how do we care for this uncleanness? Well, this chapter provides the solution for this issue on one level. 
In many cases, a sacrifice must be made. What type of sacrifice is that? A sin sacrifice. One that removes not the sin itself from a person, but removes the resulting uncleanness that is produced from the sin. And so, as we open this chapter, we discover that there are various levels of importance when it comes to sin, a hierarchy of proximity to God, as it were. And so, this chapter begins with the ones who are the closest to Hashem, the priests. When a priest sins, it costs a bull to cleanse the priest from the sin. Priests serve the closest to God, and so uncleanness on the priest requires a heavy-duty detergent to cleanse the area of the sin of the priest. In this case, it's the blood of the bull. The bull is brought into the tabernacle grounds and slaughtered. The portions that belong to God, the kidneys and suet, are then offered on the altar. The rest of the animal is then taken outside of the camp and burned in a clean place as so much toxic waste. But the interesting thing that is done here is what is done with the blood of the animal. Well, some of the blood is sprinkled seven times in front of the veil to the holy place. This is the path into the tabernacle, and it had to be cleansed as the priest then entered into the tabernacle. Then the priest is to go inside the tabernacle and apply the blood to the horns of the altar of incense. The remainder of the blood is then taken back outside and is then poured at the base of the brazen altar. Why is the blood of the sin sacrifice applied to the items in worship and not to the worshiper? That's because the sacrifice does nothing for the sin that clings to a person, the sin that is attached to simply being human. The blood of bulls and goats do nothing to remove sin. The sin sacrifice only acted as a detergent for the holy things. They cleansed the articles from the results of our sin, so that Hashem could continue to dwell in the midst of Israel. And as Leviticus 16 steeps it, so that he could continue to dwell in the midst of the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Now, if you still don't quite get this concept, let's turn to the first place that the sin sacrifice is mentioned in the Bible. And that is Exodus 29. Right in the middle of the instructions for the ordination of the priest, we read something interesting. Exodus 29, 36-37 And prepare a bull each day as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it. And you shall anoint it to set it apart. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar is to be holy. Each day a bull was to be prepared as a sin offering. Why? To make atonement for the altar, to sanctify the altar, and to cleanse the altar. There's no mention here of the sacrifice doing anything to clean the priests of their sins. For, as Hebrews 10 states, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Alongside this, we discover later in Leviticus that the sin offering was offered at times when no purposeful offense had been committed. Anytime there was an abnormal case of uncleanness, a sin offering was part of the purification process. We read of this in Leviticus 12. A woman offers a sin offering after having a child. She didn't commit a sin by having a child, but having a child is part of that sinful nature at least the way that we experience it in the world right now. In Leviticus 14, a person being cleansed from Zaharot, or leprosy, 
was required to bring a sin sacrifice. In this case, the sacrifice is also referred to as a guilt sacrifice, which is a subset of the sin sacrifice that we will consider next week. And in Leviticus 15, a person who has an abnormal discharge from their genitals is to offer a sin sacrifice as part of the cleansing. So not only is the sin sacrifice for cleansing the dwelling place of God for the uncleanness of the people, the sin sacrifice is also necessary at times of uncleanness that have no willful participation by the person who's offering the sacrifice. The blood of the sin sacrifice it acts as a detergent for the holy things in order to wash away the uncleanness that was caused by sin. And so as we continue in the fourth chapter of Leviticus, we discover that several different classes of people are described here, and each class has a different type of animal that was to be offered when a person committed a sin by mistake. In the case of the sacrifice, we are told that this only applies when a person does a thing that is to not be done. Now, the first that we've already discussed was when a priest sinned by mistake. Now, the second is when the community as a whole sins in some way. In both of these cases, the detergent is the blood of one bull. And in both of these cases, we find that the same thing is done throughout. The blood is sprinkled seven times before the veil, the blood is applied to the altar of incense, and then the blood is then poured out at the base of the altar of sacrifice. The same thing for a single priest as for the entire congregation. Let that sink in for a moment as we consider what this means in connection to the altar of incense and the veil of the tent. The entire community is represented before God in the altar of incense. Now, third is when a leader of the people who is not part of the tabernacle system sins, a governmental leader, a judge of some sort. The leader then brings a male goat as his sacrifice, and the blood is only applied to the altar of sacrifice. A leader, as an individual, he has no business being inside the tent, and so his sin doesn't need to purify the tent or anything that's inside of the tent. Finally, then, there's the layman of the people who sins by mistake. For this sacrifice, it's a female goat or a female lamb that was to be offered for the sacrifice. And in this case, the same thing is done with the blood as was done for the leader. The blood is applied to the altar and then simply poured out. Now, this is as far as an individual layman could go. They couldn't go past the altar. So, removing their uncleanness any further into the tabernacle was, frankly, unnecessary. Now, at the end of each of these sections is a phrase that has caused many to make the claim, including myself in the past, that the sacrifice did, in fact, clean a person of their sins. That phrase is, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. Now, we read this and we understand that since the offense was forgiven, then the sin must have been removed. But that's not the case. The result of the sin was removed from the place and the person was forgiven for their trespass, even though sin was still part of the person. Sin was still part of their nature. Now, since the beginning of Leviticus, we've looked at the attitudes that are associated with the various sacrifices. And so, if we were to boil down the attitude behind the sin sacrifice, it would be easy to jump straight to sadness or wretchedness due to our own sin. But that ideal fits better with the guilt sacrifice that we'll talk about next week. For the sin sacrifice on its own, whether for something described here or for the cleansing of the uncleanness on Yom Kippur or for birth or leprosy or any of those others, 
the idea that best accompanies all of these situations is it's a simple recognition of our own mortality before God. It's a recognition of just how much greater he is than we are. It's the thought of, I'm not worthy of being in relationship with him. He is so much grander than I am. He is so much grander than we are. We are not worthy of his attention and his affection, but he has given it to us anyway. And he makes us worthy when we are not worthy of ourselves. And at this time of Israel, before the Messiah, this was the means that God gave the people to approach him without offense. He provided the detergent, or the soap, if you will, that cleanses the stench from our mortal flesh and creates a sweet fragrance in his nostrils, one that allows us to approach him. Now, this was how sin was dealt with in the past, in the days of God's physical presence on earth in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. But in this age, there's something completely different going on when it comes to the sacrifice for sin that we have in Yeshua. Remember, the blood of bulls and goats can never take sin away from us. The blood of animals only ever cleansed the space where God dwelt in our midst. But in Yeshua, in Yeshua we have something more, something of great joy. Ephesians 1, 7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the richness of his favor. So our sins have indeed been forgiven through the shed blood of our Messiah, just as they were here in Leviticus 4. But there's more. Our sins are not only forgiven, they've been taken away through the blood of Yeshua. Revelation 1 verse 5, And from Yeshua Messiah, the trustworthy witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of this earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Or how about Hebrews 9, 24 through 26? For Messiah has not entered into a holy place made by hand, figures of the true, but into the heavens itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place year by year with blood not his own, for if so he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. Yeshua's sacrifice is better than the sacrifices offered in the tabernacle, according to the author of Hebrews. This sacrifice offered in the tabernacle has allowed a person to enter into the presence of God in the tent made with human hands. But the blood of Yeshua cleansed us from sins once and for all, and not just for an individual, for all mankind. Hebrews 10, 4-17 For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, coming into the world, he says, Sacrifices and meal offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In ascending offerings and offerings for sin, you did not delight. Then I said, See, I come. In the roll of the book it has been written concerning me, to do your desire, O God. Saying above, sacrifice and meal offering and ascending offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor delight in, which are offered according to the Torah. And he said, See, I come to do your desire, O God. He takes away the first to establish the second. 
By that desire we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Yeshua the Messiah once and for all. And indeed, every priest stands day by day doing service and repeatedly offering the same sacrifice offerings which are never able to take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice offering for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after having said before, This is the covenant that I shall make with them after those days, says Hashem, giving my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I shall write them. And their sins and their lawlessness I shall remember no more. Yeshua cleanses us from our sins. Not just the acts that we have committed that transgress the written words that we read each week, not just to appease our guilt or our conscience in regards to sin, but Yeshua took our sin from us, the nature of sin that controlled us, the desires of the flesh that rule us. Romans 6, 6, know this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Or Ephesians 4, verse 20 through 24, but you have not so learned a Messiah, if indeed you have heard him and were taught by him, as truth is in Yeshua that you put off with regard to your former behavior the old man, being corrupted according to the desires of the deceit, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, so that you put on the renewed man, which was created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 16-19 So from now onwards we know no one according to the flesh. And if we have known Messiah according to the flesh, yet now we no longer know him thus. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a renewed creature. The old matters have passed away. See, all matters have become new. And all matters are from God, who has restored us to grace with himself through Yeshua the Messiah, and has given us the service of restoration to favor. That is, that God was in Messiah, restoring the world to favor unto himself, not reckoning their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of restoration to favor. Not only are our sins forgiven in Yeshua, not only are our sins taken away, the nature of sin and death that has ruled over us from conception is removed from us. We have in reality become a new creation that is not subject to sin and death. And just as with the sin sacrifice in the tabernacle, so too did the sacrifice of Yeshua cleanse us of the effects of our sin. 1 John 3, 2-9 Beloved ones, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone having this expectation in Him cleanses himself as He is clean. Everyone doing sin also does lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Everyone staying in him does not sin. Everyone sinning has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one lead you astray. 
The one doing righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. The one doing sin is of the devil, because the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, to destroy the works of the devil. Everyone having been born of God does not sin, because his seed stays in him. And he is powerless to sin, because he has been born of God. We are clean in the blood of Yeshua, clean to the point where we can boldly approach the throne of grace in the heavenlies. Because of the sacrifice of Yeshua, sin no longer controls us. Do we still commit actions that are called sins? Yes, we do. But those sins, they no longer control us, nor do they define us. We're no longer creatures of sin. We're sons of God. We are just as Yeshua was without sin before God, no longer born of our Father, but reborn of Him, with Hashem as our Father, reborn in the likeness of the new creation. Sin, death, these things have passed away for us. Now we live. We live for Him. And without sin in our flesh, His Spirit is now able to indwell us. Without sin in our flesh, we are able to work righteousness for him. Without sin in our flesh, we are able to live for his kingdom, to do his will. And that is what we are called to do. Once we have died to ourselves, once the blood of Yeshua's sacrifice has been applied to our lives, once we have been cleansed of the uncleanness that besets us, and once we've taken on the new nature of righteousness. Only then can we truly enter into the relationship that God seeks to have with us. And that relationship is the path to life. So let's derish chai. Let's recognize sin no longer holds us back as we seek life in all that we do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.